Well, good morning again. This weekend marks a really big highlight, a really big weekend in the really small town that I grew up in. Did any of you grow up in a small town? Uh, a few of you, uh, maybe you have. Uh, we often hear politicians talk about small towns, the idea that what's happening on Wall Street is not the same thing that is happening on Main Street. And that's, a, that's an idiom to be able to use to try to describe the differences in our country of these two different places. But the longer that I'm around, the more I just turned 40, so I haven't been around that long, but the longer that I'm around, I'm more convinced that very few people actually know what it's like to grow up and to live and to be in a day-to-day rhythm of a small town. The Hallmark Movie Channel tries to do it every Christmas in what seems like the limitless supply of Christmas stories, Christmas movies, and they always have the same baseline. The, the lawyer goes to New York City, is making themselves a big name for herself. She's making money. She's got everybody around her. And for some reason, she has to return back to her hometown and she doesn't want to be there. And it's an emergency and she's going to have to leave on the next train out of town until she sees that guy, the old high school sweetheart, in the flannel shirt and backwards hat. That's the guy, right? And then somehow, speed forward, they get married. That's exactly, there's your Christmas Hallmark movie. Well, my name is Pastor Mile, and I am from a small town. I'm glad you decided to join us today. I hope that you have God's Word with you. I hope you came prepared and brought that with you. Each week we try to remind you to bring your Bible with you, bring uh, something to write with with you, and to bring something to write on with you. We want you to have those things each week. So I hope that you came prepared. You're going to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And today's sermon title is this, True Greatness. True Greatness. Like I said, I came from a small town. A cute little factoid of my small town, that, of my town of origin, origin, I said that wrong, I read it in my notes and read it the wrong way, <laughs> is that my town has more cows than it has people in the little town that I grew up with. In the 2020 census, there was approximately 1,100 people there in Delavan, New York. That's the little town that I am from. And I don't have any empirical data to back this up. This is just generally from my own observations. I would say, uh, without being able to go on some type of uh, uh, empirical data that would tell me exactly how many bovines there would be in the census, I would say that there's approximately five to ten times more cows than there are people in Delavan, New York. Down the road from our little town, there's another slightly bigger town. I believe that there they would have a one-to-one ratio approximately of cows to people in this town, and that would be in Arcade, New York. Arcade, New York is a small town near near here. The metropolis of Arcade uh, has approximately 4,190 people according to the 2020 census. And so every year in that town, and this weekend, there's something really big that happens there in the town next to my tiny little town, and that is the 50th anniversary this weekend, the 50th anniversary celebration of the Arcade Winterfest celebration, festival, I don't know what it's called, Arcade Winterfest, that's what it's called. And further, as you might expect... This year, the high school senior was selected to represent our town for the 2022 year as the 50th Arcade Area Winterfest Pageant Queen. 
And if you're wondering, two of my sisters have been selected to wear the tiara at one point in their lives of being the Arcade Winterfest Winterfest pageant queen. It is indeed an honor. They get to ride in the parade. That's three blocks long, but they get to ride in the parade as the queen. In 1999, my senior year of high school, it was decided that in addition to the Winterfest Queen pageant, there should be included a division for those who would want to complete, compete for the title of Winterfest Pageant King. And so that was something that happened in 1999. And so yours truly, I decided to enter as a contestant in this pageant. If my memory serves me correctly, I was an absolute shoe-in to win uh, the king of this thing. And there wasn't really any reason to hold the competition at all. Let's just say we should all save some time and just handed me the crown. But that's not what happened. Turns out the judges didn't feel the same way that I did about the circumstance. There was a required music performance or a performance in front of an audience, and I was comfortable in that portion. Uh, there was other parts, however, I wasn't as comfortable doing. There was a written portion. Who would have thought there was a written portion that you needed to complete? And there was a, a question and answer portion that you had to be able to answer. And I think I literally actually stated the words, world peace, in my response to the question. In the end, I did not win the title of Winterfest Pageant King. I came in, what I believe in correct pageant terms, would be called the second runner-up. I think that's the correct way to say that. That means that you come in third place of three contestants. <laughs> My best friend, my best friend who lived down the road and around the corner at a big, uh, right next door to a big dairy farm on a hill, on a road called Cheeseman Hill Road. This is where we live, friends. Cheeseman Hill Road. My best friend in the world was there. He lived there. And he was in the pageant with me. And he won the Winterfest King pageant instead of me. And in true pageant competition fashion, it became a major problem between the two of us. Which, of course, leads me to Matthew chapter 18. I bet that wasn't the illustration you expected today on Super Bowl Sunday when you saw the sermon's title today. True greatness. Winterfest pageant king second runner up. Matthew 18 follows the passage we talked about last week. Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27, where the Apostle Peter is approached by a tax collector. He's asked about his rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's questioned, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? If you were here last week, if you're watching from home right now, you need to pause, you need to go back a week to understand why I just said that. If you're here in the room, you need to go back and figure out why I just said that. Because the tax collector was literally questioning the, the authenticity, the genuineness, the credibility of Jesus to be a rabbi, to be a proper teacher of the law. He was questioning his credentials as whether he was actually going to be good enough or wise enough to teach the Scriptures. The literal author of the Scriptures themselves in question was being asked whether he was properly accredited to be able to teach the Scriptures to others. The author of the universe was being questioned on his credentials. And so Jesus sent Peter fishing. He sent him fishing 
to pay his taxes because he was the author of the universe and he could do that. And they were paid in full. So we pick up chapter 18. Peter returns back to his house where everyone was staying. We find the disciples, they are bickering amongst each other again about their rank within the hierarchy of the kingdom of heaven. And this was juvenile in the way that they were bickering back and forth about each other. It's just as juvenile as the bickering that happened between me and my best friends, seniors in high school. We've been best friends for 15 years, and now we're going to bicker with one another. I had met this kid at VBS and when I was four years old at VBS at church in the summer. I've been friends with him all these years, and I wanted to be upset about him because he won the Winterfest King. Silly. But some didn't think that Peter, who would appear to have been called out by the tax collector as the leader among the disciples, some did not want to see him as that. And if he was, if indeed he was the first in line, well then who would follow him in line? What, who would be the next person if something were to happen to Peter? And by what criteria would that other individual be named for that role? So they asked Jesus this question. Read with me beginning in verse 1, 18 verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So here's the question as put before us in the text. That's where we're going to start this morning. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Even in asking this question the way the disciples were asking, they have come to some conclusions that we need to dig into. We need to look at some conclusions about what Jesus has been teaching about. And maybe you have come to some of the same conclusions and they are incorrect. First, they suppose that all who have a place in the kingdom of heaven are indeed great. Why would they think this? Jesus had taught them continuously that the poor in spirit the meek in temperament, that those who are mournful, that those are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. But still, they are looking at kings, and they are looking at kingdoms through a lens of man's eyes, through men's understanding. When they look around in first, the first century in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, they look around and they see kings, and they see kingdoms. They see King Herod, and they see the Roman authority and the Roman oppression that is over them. They see kings and kingdoms demonstrated by power and control. And so they come to the conclusion that all who are part of the kingdom of heaven, all who are part must be great. Secondly, they suppose that there are levels of greatness. That there are levels of greatness to the kingdom of heaven. And again... From man's perspective, it's understandable. It's a logical conclusion that they could come to. But this isn't what Jesus has been teaching them. They have not been paying attention. Jesus has been teaching that when a Roman guard forces you to carry his armor for a mile, what does he tell them? He says, then you will take that armor and you'll carry it another mile. You'll walk an additional mile. When someone strikes you on the cheek, what does he say to do? He says, turn the other cheek and offer it to him as well so he can strike you Again, this doesn't sound like a kingdom where greatness is high in its reward or high in its prestige. But the disciples, they are missing it. And they are supposing that there are certain levels of greatness within the kingdom of heaven. 
and they hope to attain the next level up. Thirdly, they suppose that it must be some of them that will assume these levels of greatness. Some of them, as in the disciples who are listening to his teaching in this kingdom. Peter, it would appear, had been named by Jesus as the one. He's been called Petra or the rock on which the church would be built. If you're coming in here this morning, if you're watching at home this morning, you're coming from a Catholic background, you understand that kind of perspective. But today's passage is going to help you to be able to see where we're coming from when we look at this and we look at Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. When, Matthew, or when Peter says, you are the Christ, Matthew is making the connection for us to be able to see that it's on this confession that Jesus says, I will build my church rather than Peter and somehow being the first leader or the first pope upon who he would build his church. The reasons for that stance and the reasons for why we're coming to that conclusion is because Jesus has every opportunity here to elevate Peter and put him in some type of hierarchy to say, well, first there comes Peter and then there comes, but that's not what he does. Look what he does instead. Verse 2, he, this is Jesus speaking, he called a little child to him. And he placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Truly I tell you. Do you want to know what true greatness is, gentlemen, as they're standing there, as they're circling around him like little kids? He says, Do you want to know what true greatness is? Let me tell you right now, and you're not going to like it. Because it's going to require that you change something, that you change your behavior, you change your thoughts, you change your steps and begin to look at things and look at your lives and look at what it means to live on this earth in a different manner. Some of you in your Bibles, as you're looking at this right now, the word change that I've got on the screen is not the word that you have in front of you. Depending on which English translation you are looking at right now, some of you have a different word. Specifically, those who are looking at a King James version, you'll see that it's been translated with this word. Change has been translated to the word convert. Unless you convert and become like little children. Unless you transform, we read elsewhere, unless you transform by the renewing of your minds, unless you convert, unless something changes, this is the same idea that John the Baptist teaches and he uses in his ministry. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent and be baptized. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is what he says. And so if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then change your thoughts, change your behaviors, Change your steps and begin looking at things and living your lives in a different manner in light of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you must change. You must convert. You must transform and become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, therefore, so as a result of what I've said so far, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's summarize all this in this statement. True greatness stands helplessly humble before Jesus. True greatness stands helplessly humble before Jesus. 
Jesus' disciples are all gathered around him. He is, he is most likely staying with Peter because as last week's message talked about, Peter and Jesus were from this area. That's why the only two of them were being asked about the temple tax. The disciples are there. They are bickering with one another. Who will be next in line? And Jesus stops everything and calls over, most likely one of Peter's children. He calls him over, has him stand there in front of him. And this is how he's going to explain the hierarchy that is who would be next in line in the kingdom of heaven. So he calls them over and has this child stand there among them. If you've got little children at home like I do, uh, kids don't like this situation. Parents, you all have your friends over, they're all here, and you want to call your, little, your son, your daughter, call them over and ask them to tell a joke. Ask them to tell about the good grade they got on a test. Ask them anything. They don't want to talk to you. Yesterday was my little guy's eighth birthday. Elias, happy birthday. It's his eighth birthday. And all day long, the phone was ringing off the hook. Friends and, fr- friends and family from out of town are calling and asking if they can FaceTime with him to talk to him, ask him different things. And so he comes and he stands in front of the, the, the FaceTime. He stands in front of our iPad and talks to people for just a few minutes. They're, they're literally, he's literally the king for a day. It's all about him. And he lasts all of one, maybe two minutes. And what's he want to do? He's, he's always looking off screen and saying, Dad, can I go? It's his birthday. I don't want to talk to them. I shouldn't say that. Mom, I was glad to talk to you. That was good. (laughs) He just sheepishly stood there. And he'd look at us. Okay, can, can I go now? True greatness stands helplessly humble before Jesus. This child that's been called over The position that Jesus says is necessary for those who would be considered great, truly great. He gives us even that qualifier. He says truly great in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness stands helplessly humble before Jesus. And isn't that true today? You better believe it. 2,000 years later, do you want to know what true greatness looks like? True greatness stands helplessly humble before Jesus. And Jesus says it even further. He says, if you welcome one of these children in my name, you welcome me, he says. We need the next verse to be able to get the full meaning of that statement. So here it is, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung about their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a pretty intense word picture. Would you agree? Jesus took it to a whole nother level. But before we get to that, we have to see the person or the people that Jesus is referring to here. At first glance, you might come to the conclusion that if you're one of those bad guys, someone who is messing around with little children, then you have Jesus to answer to. And that would be right, but it wouldn't be the primary meaning of what this passage is teaching us here. The little ones that Jesus is referring to are not necessarily little children like the one that he is standing in front of him as he's talking there with his disciples. In fact, at this point, I would guess if he's anything like my kids, he would basically be looking back at Jesus, looking back at everyone and saying, can I go now? I think there's something bigger going on here. And Jesus would dismiss him and say, let's talk about the main thing here. Because he's not talking about children as in numerical age. 
but these children, he says. And he gives us the definition of these children. He says, these children, those who believe in me. So he's changing. He's, he's changing who he's talking about and what he's talking about. He wants to get the focus, the attention of the disciples. He dismisses the little boy. He says, those who believe in me, these children. So those who have faith in Jesus, those who believe in his name, those who have faith like a child, unassuming trust in Jesus, unpretentious faith in Christ. These are the little ones that Jesus is referring to. And so if you mess with these little ones, Jesus says, it would be better to have a millstone necklace. Not just a grinding stone, a hand grinding stone. These are things that would actually be common in most of their homes during that time. A hand grinding stone is where women would actually take and prepare the grain for the bread, but it was a little block that would sit near the, the fireplace or near the where they would prepare the food or near, uh, if there was sometimes a pot for them to cook, and that's what would be there. And it was a small stone that they would be able to roll uh, back and forth another small stone on it to grind and be near the heart of the fire. The irony is that this stone and its location in the middle of the house, in the middle of things, often would cause you to do what? To trip over it. To stumble over it. Hence the concept here of the stumbling block. Now Jesus says, millstone. He doesn't, it's a different word. He's going after a different intention, a different meaning than the grinding stone or the hand grinding stone that would be there in the house. No one would accidentally trip over a millstone. There would only be one, maybe two of these in the little town where an ox or a donkey would be used to be able to tread grain and go back and forth and around and around. This thing would be massive. Jesus says, if you are a stumbling block to my little children, to my little lambs in the flock, Imagine how much you would stumble, he says. Imagine how much you would stumble if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you tried to walk down the street of our little town with a millstone hanging off of your neck. If you're not getting his point yet, he says, let me take it a little bit further. His hyperbole goes even farther to say, why don't you go for a swim? Why don't you go out to the lake? Go for a swim with this millstone tied about your neck. He says, that would be better for you than if you're going to be responsible for tripping up, for being a stumbling block to one of my little children. And then Jesus takes a little aside. He steps aside for just a moment, just a couple of verses, talking about the things that will cause people to stumble. The things that are part of our world, the things that temptations that we experience, even this temptation to fight and squabble that the disciples are having right there in front. He says, this temptation is going to be here. It's part of the sin nature. It's part of our human condition, part of what is broken in this world. Here's what he says, verse 7, woe to this world because of the things that will cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Did you catch that? This world has enough stumbling blocks of its own. Woe to the world for tripping up God's children. But it would be better to be drowned at sea than to be the one who has gone out and intentionally, for to be the one who has gone out and set a trap for the little ones that Jesus has determined here that I am going to protect. Which leads us to our second conclusion 
about true greatness. So first, true greatness stands helplessly humble before God. Here's the second one. True greatness desires Jesus' compassionate heart for his children. True greatness desires Jesus' compassionate heart for his children. I don't have to tell you that greatness is defined in many, many different ways by our world. Many, many ways, and if they are not centered on Christ and centered on the things that he loves and centered on the things that he gave his heart for, then they will become what? They will become stumbling blocks to you and to me. They will trip you up. Jesus is telling this to the people he loves, his little children. He loves his church and he loves his bride. He gave his life for salvation for every single human being that is on this planet because he loves and he cares and he paid the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of his children. True greatness desires Jesus' compassionate heart for his children. There are so many places in the world, including here in the United States of America, where children are cast off in some form and some fashion. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. May God bless those who, who bring the children, show love to children. Even right now, we have children's church going on. We have children's programming going on downstairs in the nursery. And every week, there are people who are serving and loving children here at Randall. They are being like Jesus by showing love to those little children. And at no time should you ever hear someone in this room, one of our congregation, one of the members of our church say, I just don't like children. Because you're not like Jesus when you say that. When you welcome a child, you are mimicking the character of God himself. But don't miss this. Similarly, and actually the main point that's being made here is that if you are a Christ follower, if you are someone who professes to follow Jesus with all of your heart, you profess to call yourself a Christian, and if you ever say, I love Jesus, I just can't stand his church. I just can't stand the people who call themselves Christians. Be careful. Be careful because those are the little children that Jesus says he loves. And that's the primary meaning of this text. Those are the ones he offers. Hey, why don't you go take a swim in the lake? Oh, and on your way, let me hand you this millstone as you go and see how that works out for you. If you decide that you want to be a trip hazard, if you decide that you want to be a stumbling block for a little child of God. True greatness desires Jesus' compassionate heart for his children. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire's of hell. Here's the third point this morning. True greatness pursues Jesus' ruthless commitment to holiness. 
True greatness pursues Jesus' ruthless commitment to holiness. This is a bit of a callback that Jesus is doing, going back a few chapters in the Sermon of the Mount when He is teaching on this. He's teaching the disciples about what it meant to be spiritually pure, the levels in which a person could or should go to to remain pure before the Lord. That's what He's referring them to. They've already heard Him teaching on this and the extreme nature of what's being said here. Jesus speaks of cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot or gouging out your eye if it causes you to sin. What is going on here? What he's talking about in larger terms, in bigger words, when we talk about your hand or your foot, he's referring to a lane of choices that we make regarding our activities or the things that we love to do, the places we like to go, the things we like to touch and interact with, your hand or your foot. Cut it away, he says if it causes you to sin. When he talks about our eye, Pastor Brian preached an entire sermon on the eye to be able to talk about what Jews understood when we read, when we read about the eye. He says, clean up your eye. Pay attention because your eye has to do with your life's ambitions and goals and intentions and what you see and where you go. And all of that is encompassed in this. And he says, you better be careful in this lane over here that has to do with your ambitions, your desires, what drives you. So if there's anything that is going to trip you up, you'd be better off to cut it away, trim it back. Make sure that these things align with Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven. There have been some in church history that have taken Jesus' words literally, going to the point of cutting away limbs and fingers, gouging out eyes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus is teaching here about something more that has to do with our activities, has to do with our ambitions. Because if it was meant to be literal, I think you would agree, I would agree, I would not be alive. Because literally every part of my body, I have sinned in every part of my body, particularly in my heart and in my mind, in my eye. Jesus is using hyperbole to make this point. We must take sin very, very seriously, and we must be totally committed to the process of doing so. Jesus says it is better for us to sacrifice everything in this life to go in and stay away from hellfire without sacrificing. It is better for us to sacrifice everything in this life and stay away from hellfire because it's saying we can get into health, heaven, eternal life, if we have missing a hand, missing an eye, missing any of these things, it would be fine. As he takes his hyperbole all the way through. Church, hell is real. Eternal damnation, which is a breaking away, a, a relationship that is eternally severed from God. That's really the damnation of hell. It is a great evil place to be torturous fire, great agony, great suffering, terrible judgment, all because that relationship is broken and damaged. We don't really want to find out what that might be like. So take time this week. Identify one, two more ways that you can be a holier person, cutting away the things that are damaged and broken in your hands and your feet, cutting away the things that are pulling you away in your eye away from who God would have you be.
It's worth every sacrifice you could make. Because the reward for that sacrifice is everlasting and bountiful life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Strive for holiness. It is worth the sacrifice. Who then, to repeat our question from the beginning, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? of heaven. As the band comes up, I'll give one more illustration before we close. It's a Super Bowl commercial. It's a Super Bowl day. Commercials are one of my favorite part of the Super Bowl. 1994. The fourth Super Bowl of your very own Buffalo Bills. There was a commercial that year that showed us one of my favorite commercials. It featured a very young, very small Elijah Wood. He's the guy who is in all the Lord of the Rings movies playing the character Frodo. Just a little kid, just a little boy. And he's sitting in the nosebleed sections in the stands with a bag of potato chips. And he bets the person next to him. He says, I bet that you can't eat just one. There's a big cowboy hat in front of him. The guy, he taps him on the shoulder. I bet that you can't eat just one. And little by little, you watch this little boy move from the top of the stadium farther and farther and farther forward. I bet you can't eat just one. They're selling a lot of potato chips for this commercial, friends. I bet you can't eat just one. He makes his way past cowboy hat guy. He makes his way past this big African-American woman with a big funny laugh. She says, oh, you got, I, I got this one, honey. And the next thing you know, she's moving back. Dan Quayle is in this commercial. He taps him on the shoulder. He says, I bet you can't eat just one. The next thing you know, this little boy is sitting at the front edge in the stadium. And he sees the, the Dallas Cowboys bencher from him. He yells out to the bench. He says, hey! And you see Troy Aikman turn and look at him. And that's all you see. And then, you know, cut three, four, five seconds later, you see a little boy in the huddle taking the hike. <laughs> Crazy, right? How could a little kid step out on the field with all of those great players? How could a little boy be in the middle of all of that greatness? Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness is found through humility, compassion, and holiness. True greatness in the kingdom of heaven, true greatness in God's eyes, true greatness that you and I should pursue is found through humility, compassion, and holiness. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Dear Lord, this morning we come to you asking that you would teach us what it means, that you would challenge us, train us, develop us the same way that you were with the disciples that day in Peter's house what true greatness really looks like. This morning you may be here and you haven't started a relationship with Christ yet. When he calls and talks about his own little children that he wants to protect, that he wants to care for, you can't say there's ever been a point in your life that you said, God, I want to be one of your children. Have you ever come to a childlike faith in Christ? Aren't you tired of trying to impress someone? 
trying to do something special, trying to achieve something fantastic and wonderful just to be able to get your position, your hierarchy in this world, all to find out that it appears to be, as the wisdom of Solomon would say, meaningless. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Anyone who call on the name of the Lord, he says, will be saved. I'll adopt you into my family. Maybe today is the day. Jesus, I want to become a child of God. If you already know Jesus, if you've been in a relationship with him for a number of years, number of decades even, you may be listening to this sermon and say, you know what? I don't actually need to be that great. I'm okay with where I'm at. And you've grown complacent and lazy and you've allowed the things that will trip you up, your hands, your feet, your eyes, the ambitions of this world, the activities, the comforts of this world to trip you up. Perhaps today is the day that you need to return to becoming a humble child. Are you a humble child or have you become a heavy stone that would drag someone else down? What do you need to cut away? Lord, we've talked this morning about what it means to be truly great. I pray that there would be people here who would respond positively to what you are teaching and and showing the disciples and in turn teaching and showing us. Lord, we can't talk about greatness without talking about you. And so, Lord, as we come to a close in this portion of our service, Lord, we make a transition transition to singing and glorifying and praising you because you are the greatest. You are the focus of all of our worship, all of our glory, all of our praise. And the only reason why we can call ourselves the children of God is because you paid the ultimate sacrifice for each and every human that's ever walked on this planet and ever will do so. So we lift our voice to you in that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.